0: I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 11, Daniel chapter 11, and what we're actually going to be covering is Daniel chapter 11, verse 3, uh, through Daniel chapter 12, or, or Daniel chapter 11, verse 2, through Daniel Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, so just a, a little off kilter of the actual chapters, but Daniel chapter 11, verse 2, through Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. Um there have been many significant people in the past that have uh, really dismissed the study of history of having any academic value. Um, notably, Henry Ford thought that um, history was essentially just a, a collection of events thrown in a trash bag. Uh, and, and one of the reasons that people think this is because you have the events Um, And then historians try to shape those and mold those into almost like stories with morals that tell you all the reasons why, you know, this person was a good guy and this person was a bad guy. People think that it's too shaped and too crafted. Um, People know that these events occur, but they just don't think that they mean uh, what a lot of times historians and teachers think that they mean. And and it's true that history books often kind of tidy up the narrative to make the stories have a point, but there is still value for us as Christians to, to study history. Um, now, I will say this. If you are a Christian that sails a long life, From one triumph to another, if you never experience struggle or defeat or or go through difficult times, then you probably don't need this sermon. Um, But for those that really do struggle, sometimes we even despair to ever do what we need to do or or wonder why the Lord is letting certain things happen, we're going to need a chapter like this here in Daniel. um, Because what it really does is helps us to see that what we're going through is not unusual. It is part of the rhythm of the world, and God is, is over all of that. He is in control. And so even though evil men prosper, and even though there is war and violence and, and, and all kinds of terrible things, God is still in power. So in our context, uh, this comes at a time uh, when Daniel and his countrymen had been released from their exile. So this is the third year of Cyrus of Persia. So they have been released in the first year they were released, some went back to Jerusalem same context as last week so they had went back to Jerusalem Uh, they had started trying to build the temple but they found enemies on all sides and so they were not successful they stopped and basically at this time those that were living in Jerusalem were primarily focused on survival just making you know from from one day to the next without being swallowed up by their enemies and so Daniel and, and many of the other exiles who had remained in Babylon at least at that time they were at a point of despair. And I'm sure those in Jerusalem were as well because what they wanted was Jerusalem to be renewed, for the temple to be rebuilt, for the walls to be restored, for God's kingdom to be put back into place. But that wasn't what was happening. And, and so they were beginning to wonder, why is the Lord letting all these evil people do all these things when, when we, his own people, are struggling and suffering in the midst of all of this? And so for them, they needed a picture, they needed a vision that was going to be bigger than what they were seeing. They needed something that would give them perspective. And so if you'll remember in in Daniel chapter 10, this angel comes. And, And so Daniel had devoted three weeks of prayer and fasting. This angel comes and begins to give him a message. And, and and this message has to be something that that speaks to Daniel and his people in their time, but it also has to be something uh, that will help all of us as we begin to look at um, what is going on uh, in, in the in the larger picture of the world. So we can expect uh, we can expect this to be relevant to to Daniel uh, as far as what's going on in his world. So today we will see how God directs the events of history towards his desired end, and we can begin to understand how he is working uh, out things in our lives as well. So I think most of us would agree that God is in control of the events of history. Uh, Where we get a little worried is sometimes, did God notice what happened to me? Yes, he knows what's happening in America, and he knows what's happening in Russia, and the UK, and, and, and China, and all around the world. But does he know what happened to me yesterday? Well, yes, God knows what happened to you yesterday. And he is in control, and he is working that out for you. So the sermon in a sentence is this. Until the end of time, there will be wars and warlords. But God is fighting for us, and we must believe in his strength and wait for his return. Now, I'm going to read the passage, and it is lengthy and it feels that way. Sometimes you read a long passage and it doesn't feel that way but this one does because there's a whole lot of details in this but hang with me and you'll, you'll see what's going on at, to, to a certain extent and then you'll also understand why some people don't like history. Um, there will be a little bit of history in this sermon but only to get us to a point where we can understand what God is saying. So Daniel chapter 11 starting in verse 2. And now I will show you the truth. This is the angel speaking. Uh, And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. I'll forget to say this if, if I don't say it now. Daniel may not have even known where Greece was or what that was all about. Um, at, at this time, Greece itself was just a whole bunch of little city-states. They, they were not a unified kingdom under, under anybody's definition of that. Uh, and this king that would arise of Greece wasn't even a Greek. He was a Macedonian. So um, God is prophesying about things almost from a perspective that is completely above and looking down on what's going on. Daniel may not have even known about some of these folks. And this fourth king, I'll forget to say this as well, uh, is most likely Xerxes. So if you're familiar with the biblical story of Esther, this would have been the king that she would have married. Um, and so anyway, we'll get into that later. Um, picking up in verse 4. And as soon as he has arisen, a kingdom shall, or his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not his prosperity, nor according to the authority which he ruled for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the kings of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm and he and his arm shall not endure." But she shall be given up and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch, from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortresses of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off uh, to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His his sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, "...moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies." In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent uh, among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, And none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom. And he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom. But it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward he shall turn his face to the coastlands. "...and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken." "...neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and shall become strong with a small people." without warning he shall come into the richest parts of the province and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done scattering among them plunder spoil and goods he shall devise plans against strongholds but only for a time and he shall stir up his power and uh, his heart against the king of the south with a great army and the king of the south "...shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food uh, shall break him, and his army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. As for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil, they shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed." And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the Holy Covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the appointed time he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim, that's actually Rome, uh, shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand." though for some days they shall stumble by sword and famine, or and flame and by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. For it still awaits the appointed time, and the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till his indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the ones beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other gods, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones, and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many, and shall divide the land for a price. At the end, or at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall come into the countries, and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, that would be Israel, and tens of thousands shall fall, but he shall, or, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab, and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against these countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape." He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. And he shall go out with a great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. That's the valley of Megiddo. Yet He shall come to his end with none to help him. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Okay, so it would be easy to see why some people think that history is dull and pointless after reading a passage like this. You've got kings and you've got daughters of kings and you've got wars and rumors of wars and ships and chariots and all these things going all over the place. Most of us, Probably, and I know probably the first dozen or so times I read this passage, I just was like, okay, so I'm going to get to some of these other things that I do understand because there's so much happening here. What is actually being described before us is a detailed, although selective history that that takes us all the way to the end of time. Um, It's it's easy uh, for us to track the Persians and the Greeks. It says there'll be three kings and then a fourth. That's all the Persians ending with Xerxes. Xerxes actually does lead a massive army against the Greeks. Um, But they lose that battle. The Greeks are crafty. They don't have near as many men, but they're crafty. They defeat the Persians and send them back. Now there are other kings after Xerxes, but none of them are notable. Uh, And it's another generation before Alexander the Great actually raises up and he unites all of Greece, really his father um, Philip united all of Greece. And then they go and they conquer the Persian Empire, thereby basically conquering the known world. As soon as Alexander is finished with his conquests, he dies. Um, and his kingdom is split into four pieces. All of that's pretty common knowledge. We we kind of know those things, um, and, and so it's 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 worth following that part. And then we start getting into these kings and kings' daughters and things like that. Um, so what is this all about? Now, there's nothing in this passage that has been proven false. In fact. It's so reliable that many people believe it must have been written much later, after the Persians and Greeks. Maybe even in the Roman times people think that it might have been written there. Even biblical scholars look at it and say it's so detailed and so precise and every bit of it lines up so exactly with the way that that things actually happen that it has to have been written afterwards. I would say that these are people without faith. Um, they would suggest that God doesn't usually give these very detailed information like this. God usually speaks in more vague terms. But God has given details before and he will give details in the future from from the perspective of Daniel. So what we understand is that this is this is God laying out exactly what's going on in such a way that people for years and years to come can take encouragement from this because if God knew this, he was in control of this. So... There's no biblical or archaeological reason for us to doubt that Daniel recorded this vision along with the rest of this book in the late 6th century B.C. It seems like it's part of the book. It it is definitely as old as the rest of the book uh, because uh, Daniel throughout his writings uses Babylonian resources that no one would have had access to really uh, until much later into the Roman period. So if he was in Babylon, he would have had access to some of those things. It's about the only way that it happens. So the vision uh, here is much like the vision in chapter 8. It gives us this this quick overview of the Persians, their defeat by the Greeks, the early death of Alexander the Great, um, the division of his kingdoms. We get all of that. Um, Of note in the passage are the northern kingdom of the Seleucids and the southern kingdom of the Ptolemies. So there were four kingdoms of of Greece after Alexander died, but but we don't hear about others except the, the north and the south. And so that's that's where this battle happens. Um, and so a detailed the details are enough to confuse anyone, but every one of these are fulfilled in history. We, we can point to dates, we can point to people, and these are like outside sources, history books and, and, and records of kings and things like that. So I'm going to look at one of them and, and, and tell you what, what happened and how it was fulfilled, and, and then just vaguely mention the rest of them. So... In Daniel chapter eleven, verse six through eight, um, six through eight, it talks about, and some after some years, they'll make an alliance. The daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north, um, and and then it kind of goes forward from there. So here's what happened. So. King Ptolemy II, so this is the southern kingdom. This is Egypt, basically. So Egypt is, is, is kind of that southern kingdom, and there's more to it, but that, Egypt is the notable place. And then Syria would be the northern kingdom, and there's more to it, but Syria with the capital of Antioch, that's, that's kind of the, the, the most significant part of that, that kingdom at that time. So Ptolemy decides that he wants to make an alliance of peace with the Seleucid kingdom, with Antioch II, who is, who is the ruler there at that particular time. And so what he tries to do is send his daughter, um, Bernice, it isn't that, but I can't say what it really is, um, up to, to, uh, to Antioch to, to be married. Problem is, Antioch II is already married um, to a, a lady named uh, Laodice. Okay, he's already married and he has children. Uh, Two two sons. And so what his plan is, he's going to divorce his current wife and disinherit her two sons so that they can never be king and then marry the daughter of the king of the south and then start a new line and basically make an alliance between these two kingdoms. That's what the goal is. This all happened in history. Like this whole story actually played out. Well, the daughter does get there um, and she actually has a child by Antioch uh, but at this time, Laodice, or La- Laodice, she actually finds out about this whole plot, that he's going to disinherit the sons, um, and so she has them all poisoned. So she poisons the king, the, 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 the daughter of the other king, all of her attendants, her, her young son, poisons them all, they're all, they're all dead. Um, and, and so that, and that same year, Ptolemy, the king in the south, he dies. So there's really nobody anywhere that wants peace anymore because... Um, Bernice's um, son takes the throne in the south and he says well you killed my sister and and my nephew Um, and so he wants to fight so they're ready to fight again so it breaks down all the peace and so the way that that Daniel described it or the way that the angel described it to Daniel is exactly the way that it plays out now this is how history typically reads and if you read this for very long you get a headache and you get dizzy you're thinking why in the world do I need to know all these little details it's it's like a soap opera, and, and it really is. But God told in explicit detail how all of this was going to happen. And so all of these other things about kings coming in with chariots and they, they win sometimes, they can't win sometimes, they come in with siege warfare and, and all these kinds of things, all of this is incredibly detailed. You can you can write a write a book. Of history, following the the pattern that God sets here and it 's mostly the the details of these two kingdoms and their wars and their fights. so in the fifteen verses, basically from chapter eleven, verse five through chapter eleven, verse twenty, what you have um, yeah through verse twenty, basically what you have um, is the the um, the first hundred and fifty years or so. Of these two kingdoms, there are sixteen rulers between the two of them, and thirteen of thirteen of them are mentioned enough to where we could identify them from historical resources. It is that detailed. Um, that's that's what's so impressive. So um, the way that this works is is just amazing. How every how God lays everything out. So we're not going to go into that kind of detail about everything that happens in that part of the passage. Just know that that from from history even. Historians can't explain how Daniel knew this. And so they say that Daniel didn't write it. Somebody during the Roman times wrote it because they can't explain how he knew all these things. And so that's, that's that's what we should take, at least from the first part, is that God was in complete control and knew everything that was going on. Okay, so the Lord is in control of even the smallest detail of history, who marries who, who poisons who, all of these little things, and there is no doubt that he gives the same care and attention to our lives as well. And so that's what I wanted you to take from this, is that that, that he knows, even down to the tiniest little details, some people have believed that God knows this kingdom will win and this kingdom will win, but, but how all that happens is, is, is up to the people. It's not. God is in control. And, and God does not delegate. He, he, he does not let things happen as they will as long as he controls the outcome. God is in control. And so even in your life, in my life, the little details that we think maybe God would even think was inconsequential, he does not think that about it. Okay, so now let's get into the wars and the rumors of wars, although we've already been there, really. Um, You've got to name it something. Um, so the first phase of the vision is covered in verse uh, 5 through 20. It details with these, uh, the, the conflict between the north and the south. Uh, it basically stretches about 150 years. Um, neither was able to conquer one or the other, um, but they could not live in peace. Um, wealth, lives... Uh, men's lives, soldiers' lives, all of those things were spent um, in, in order to enhance their king, king's money or his reputation or whatever, but nothing was actually achieved. There was always still the north and there was always still the south. These events also affected the Jews, and so how did they affect the Jews? Judah was the buffer zone between this northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So, so it, it was the buffer zone. And many times the wars were actually fought in Judah because they didn't want wars down in their countries or up in their countries. Um, and so some people were caught in the conflict because they actually chose to, to pick sides. And it says, so your men of violence, um, in one place it says your men of violence would, would get swept up in this thinking that they could help. Well, they all died. Anyone that joined the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, obviously they would die. But even those that were innocent bystanders, you have a war in your backyard, obviously there are going to be casualties. So Daniel um, and, and his people needed their situation to really be put in perspective. So if you think that you've got it bad now, you're in an exile, and those that aren't exiles anymore, they're surrounded by enemies, and there's really nothing that they can do to, to move progress forward. Well that's going to be the way you're going to be this buffer zone there's going to be wars fought on your land that you don't care anything about there's going to be you know political intrigue played out in your in your streets and there's nothing you can do about it these things are going to happen but God is in control and so that's ultimately the the pattern of the entire world that's the way that things happen you know you know we are in these difficult times as well confusing times as well but But let me say this, the policies and the politics of man will never amount to lasting change because there will always be someone willing to do anything to gain more power. If ever there's peace, somebody will destroy it to get more wealthy or to get more power or, or to get more influence. That's the way that mankind works. We are greedy, we are evil, down to the core, and we will always do that. So if, if you look at America or if you look back further back in history, you see that to be true. And it doesn't matter if, if, if people tidy up the narrative or they leave it messy like it is. People are always trying to get something else. They're always trying to push a little bit further, and, and we need to know that. And we need to know that that's going to affect Christians. It's going to affect God's people. As God's people, we will be indirectly affected by the actions of the leaders of this world, but we must always remember that they are under God's sovereign rule and can do nothing that he does not permit. Okay, so we don't need to join in to their fights. That's not going to help us. We don't need to jump in and say, hey, we're this way or we're that way. Or or that That's not going to help us. What we need to do is trust in the Lord. God is in control. We can't fight those fights. We need to know what we believe. We need to know what the Word of God says and stand on that ground. We can't join into one side or the other and think that's going to be anything. I'm not talking about Democrat, Republican. I'm talking about the ways of the world, the fights of the world, the battles of everything that people are saying. We We can't get in those fights because ultimately we might appear to be bystanders, but we're fighting a different war. They are fighting for the riches of this world. We're ultimately fighting for the treasures of heaven, and so we have to fight differently. So let's look at this Antiochus IV. Now, he was uh, a ruler in the Seleucid kingdom. Um, if, if you are a student of the Bible, you've probably heard of him. Um, so the previous 15 verses covered 150 years of history. Uh, the next 15 verses will deal with this one man, Antiochus IV. The, the Um, So verse 21 through 23 describe his ascent to power um, that was intrigue and it was deception. And he made an alliance and then he would break it when it suited him. Um, Those that resisted him were swept away. Um, This uh, covenant prince that was mentioned was probably... On Anias the third, he was a high priest, and this high priest tried to resist the uh, what was called the Hellenization um, efforts. And so, basically, the Greeks that were ruling people that were not Greek wanted them to start taking on Greek practices, Greek beliefs. Greek, Greek uh, faith and things like that. Well, all of that was completely opposite to God's law. And so this high priest stood against Antiochus and wanted to, to maybe, not maybe, but wanted one the, the people to resist this. Well, um, he was removed, not killed, interestingly enough, removed. And a different high priest was put in place, one that would be more compliant, one that would allow for more compromise among God's people. And so you can see how that was working there. Um, so, during this time, the kingdoms of the north and the south, they would wage war again. Antiochus was known to really enjoy fighting uh, and thought of himself as a, as a warrior. Um, so, he invades e- Egypt um, one time with success, but another time he meets a, a Roman general, a powerful Roman general. Now, Antiochus was like fourth in line to be king in his kingdom. So he had actually been, been raised in Rome as, as basically an ex- exile. So he knew what the Romans were. He knew what kind of power they had. So when he faces them and they have sided with the, with the Ptole- Ptolemies, he knows that he's in trouble. So he does actually back away. Well, on his way back, and see, it's, it's this neat little story where, where Antioch, because he is a warrior, believes he's a warrior, he's there to fight himself, and the Roman general actually draws a circle in the sand around Antiochus, and he says, when you leave this circle, I'm either going to kill you, or you're going to agree to never invade Egypt again. And because he could not face the full power of the Romans, he actually has to surrender and humble himself and agree that he'll never um, invade the Egyptians again, and, and then he leaves the circle. Well, there were a lot of rumors spread about this, and that's the whole point of doing something that dramatic, is it, is it kind of ruins his reputation. Well, rumor had it Antiochus had been either killed by the Romans or poisoned by his own men for being a coward. Who knows, but, but rumor had it he was dead. And so the Jews of Judah began to try to rebel. They began to try to go back to, to ruling themselves. And so when he leaves Egypt, he has to go right through Judah. And there they are rebelling and, and, and acting like he's dead. And so he responds with violence, kills thousands of people in the streets. Um, he, he institutes martial law. He eliminates all the offerings and even sacrifices a pig on the altar in the Holy of Holies. All of this to, to completely remove any um, rebellious nature from the Jews. He's trying to crush their spirit, crush their religion, really remove them from any sort of desire to go forward uh, with, with their way of life. Now, here's the thing there are many people that actually went along with this. They said, okay, he's too powerful. We can't fight him. We're just going to go along with this. There were others that resisted and they eventually got enough of them that they were actually successfully able to rebel against the Greeks. But at this particular time, what we see, and this passage doesn't cover that, what we see is is that he ruled with this iron fist and with, with evilness. Now, some things that is pointed out, and I'll come back to this, but some things that are pointed out is that there were wise people. Wise people spoke, and they told the truth, and they tried to teach those around them, and they tried to avoid this. Other wise people stumbled and failed, but there were some wise people that knew the word of God and knew what they should do, and, and they, stood, they stood strong. So in the American church today, we may uh, be tempted to wonder why God has allowed Things to get so bad, but we must remember that Antiochus the Fourth, and that he, um, we must remember him, and that he was allowed to treat the Jews in that manner. So, we are not different than the Jews, or I mean, we're different, but we're not more special. So if God has allowed his people throughout all of history to be persecuted, to be treated poorly by the kings and the princes of this world, and and, and to be abused, then he certainly is prone to allow that to happen to us as well. And what we have to remember is that we need to stand firm in the Lord, not necessarily grumble and complain about how we might be being treated now. The Lord never promised that we could live without trials. But he did promise to be with us through those trials, and that in the end, everything would work out for our good. He did make that promise. And so, even though we are going to go through difficulties, and I think that it may even be more difficult in America soon, rather than later, we will be able to endure. So God is going to give us some keys. But first, one greater than Antiochus. So even though there's no break in the narrative uh, between verse 35 and and verse 36, it does seem that we have moved on from from Antiochus. Um, Some of this does describe him such as his religious shift. So by the end of Antiochus' life, the only god he worshipped was Zeus. Now, Zeus was the god of military, the god of, 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 not the god of war, they had a different god for that, but, but he was the god of military fortresses, strength, military strength. That's, that's who Zeus was, and he was a Greek god, which is um, uh, something that was kind of against the Romans and against that old way of life. Um, and, and so for him, uh, that was his whole focus. And so that part does sound like Antiochus. But he never led an army back into Egypt. He never uh, had this massive uh, battle plan in the Valley of Megiddo, and he certainly didn't die there. Um, in fact, Antiochus, um, he died in a rather minor campaign in Persia in 164 AD. So part of this isn't him. And so that's, that's with the, the precision and detail that this passage has had so far, obviously they wouldn't have got it wrong about him. Um, so... This new ruler will likely rise to power, much like he did, uh, by intrigue and deceit. Whoever this new ruler is, um, it would be a tiny leap, but it's worth it to mention this is probably the Antichrist. It, it, it's worth it to mention that this is probably a reference to that. Okay? So, so this new ruler will rise in a lot of the same way that Antiochus did. From out of left field, he, he, he was not supposed to rule, he was not supposed to have power, but he rose through intrigue, deceit, confusing people, deceiving people, making promises and then breaking them when it benefited him, gaining power even by a small margin, but gaining that power and then growing. That power continued to grow and grow and grow, um, and, and he is going to be successful in battle. So this person will be charismatic. He will be charming. Uh, This person will have military success, but they won't be regarded as royalty. They won't be regarded as somebody that could rule, but they're going to take that power anyway. And when they do, they're going to be incredibly successful. They're going to crush every military force that they ever face. That's the picture that we're going to have. But eventually, this leader will prepare for battle in the Valley of Megiddo, whether that's literally that you know location on the map or whether it's kind of a reference to that but between the sea the mediterranean sea and the holy hill which is jerusalem there lies a valley and that is a valley that that hundreds of battles have been fought in men have lived and died in that valley so many different times and so this particular place is is the bible paints that as armageddon that final battle and so in this final battle all of his allies are going to desert him. He is going to stand against an enemy that he cannot defeat, which is not identified in the passage, which is very helpful for us because it does seem that it is God. It's not some, you know, Russia or, or England or somebody like that. It, it, it is an unidentified foe that that this, this evil king is going to face, and he cannot win. And so that's the picture. And so how would Daniel receive this? Well, Daniel, obviously, as he's going through this vision, if... If he is like me and and, and and maybe like some of us as we was reading that passage, we were thinking, is this ever going to end? And some of you probably thought this is going to be a really long sermon. Fortunately, you get to be right sometimes. But the idea is that for Daniel, there's an end. There is this evil king that has done anything that he wants to do, and there's an end. He meets an enemy that he cannot defeat. And Daniel would have known that this was God. Daniel would have known that this was ultimately um, not another country, but it was God himself. So this whole story would have been terrifying, but it also would have been encouraging at the same time. The great battle would happen in their land, because that was obviously the middle of Judea, um, but God would fight for them. That's, that's what they would have believed at that particular point. So the people of God cannot avoid the spiritual and physical battles that he is fighting, but we can know that he will fight for us and deliver us from evil. So chapter 10, all about the spiritual warfare that's happening just outside of our sight. Chapter 11, all about this physical, these physical battles that are going to happen, and they're going to be written about in the history books. But in both of these instances, God is in control and God is victorious. So how do we finish this up? We believe, resist, teach, and pray. Daniel and those like him were troubled by the events of their current age, and this vision was sent to comfort them. Now, if you read this passage and you think, oh, that makes me very comfortable, um, you're you're more biblically astute than I am. Um, But as we dig into it, we understand what God is saying here. So God was not taking away their troubles. This this passage doesn't say, hey, you're going to go back home, there's going to be a temple, there's going to be walls, you're going to have your own kingdom, it's all going to be great. You know, it's going to be Camelot for you. That's not what God tells them. What God tells them is that it's going to continue to be turmoil. It's going to continue to be trouble. There's going to be problems everywhere, but you will stand and you will endure all the way to the end. God's giving them a strategy. So a couple of things. What should we do? God's people must believe that He is in control and that He is fighting for them in every situation that arises. Why did God tell His people explicitly what's going to happen? So that when they start seeing these things happen, they know God knew about this. He foretold this. This isn't a surprise to Him. He's in control. Second, we must resist the evil ways of the world by standing firm on the Word of God without compromise. How do Christians fight? Well, it would be easy for us to take up a sword or a gun or, or whatever and fight in that manner. But that's not what God has called us to do. We have to stand firm in the faith. We have to stand firm on the word and the promises of God. We cannot compromise or allow those around us to compromise. Remember those wise people who pointed out to, to those around them, look, believe in God, trust in Him. We can't allow people to be deceived. Now what does that mean? Well, that still means calling sin, sin, in a world in which that's no longer popular. It still means saying what is right. And and what's right is that God is in control and not mankind. What is right is still trusting Him and and not depending on the sciences and, and, and all the other things of the world, because the reality is, it is God's world. Did he give us science? Yes. Did he give us education? Yes. Did he give us certain things that have made our lives easier and better? Yes. But at the end of the day, we don't need those things. We need him. We need his provision. So we've got to resist by resisting the influences and the power of this culture. We must be teaching those around us the wonder of the message of God and his gospel, even though only a few will truly listen. That was the story in Daniel's day. That's what Jesus told us. Only a few will listen. So we've got to continue to proclaim it. Even though only a few people will listen, we've got to continue to proclaim it. And finally, we must pray like Daniel prayed. Because our part of these battles will be won in the prayer closet, not in the battlefield. We're not going to be the ones duking it out. These battles are bigger than us. But we will spend our time praying and trusting in the Lord and turning other people to the Lord that's where our work is that's what we're supposed to do so you might say well yeah there's a culture war going on they're trying to erase Jesus from our culture yes they are yes they are but if we've learned anything it's that those that speaking those that are still speaking do have a voice not everybody's going to listen and and there was a time when this country could have been labeled a Christian country and i don't know that it can anymore But if the Christians that are in the country continue to proclaim Christ, then there will still be Christians in this country when Jesus comes back. That's important for us to know, is that we have to keep talking about him. We have to keep telling people about him. No matter how offensive it becomes, no matter how dangerous personally it becomes, we've got to continue to proclaim. People have given their life for the faith before, and we may have to again, but that's how we resist. It, it's, it's not about taking guns and going and killing somebody because in reality, while that would be easy, it wouldn't be right. What we have to do is proclaim the gospel and allow God to be the warrior that fights for us. It's not about us. It's not about our glory. It's not about what we want. It's about what he wants. And for him, it is about his son, Jesus Christ, being magnified and displayed before the nations so that people can know how to be saved. That's what we must do. And so let us proclaim Jesus until he returns and he will defeat that great enemy. And at that point, then we can celebrate. Then we can know that our trials are over. Our victory is completely won. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this word. There are a lot of words. And Lord, I confess that some of it is a little confusing. But what we do see very clearly is that you are in control. That there is no surprising you. And there is no power of mankind that can rival you. I pray that we would hang on to that. Mankind can crush us. But they can never defeat you. We place our lives. The lives of our family. The lives of those we hold most dear. We place all of those lives in your hands. We trust you, we love you, we depend on you. We will never turn from you. We will always trust you. So Lord, I pray that you will help us to stay true to that. In this moment, in this hour, it's easy for us to commit to you. But there's coming a day when only the faithful will truly commit. I pray that we will make that decision now so that we will not waver when the moment of true decision comes. I pray that we stand firm. I pray that we have the strength and the courage to never doubt you and never surrender what we believe because it's more convenient to believe something else. Let us remember that Jesus faced trials like these and even greater, and he did not waver. Let us follow him as our example. It's in his name we pray. Amen.